0: Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in-depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn, I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Over the past few years, Yemen has featured on the international news agenda as one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. The hopes of the protest movement in 2011 gave way to civil war and a brutal Saudi-led invasion. But the people of Yemen aren't just the victims of a political tragedy. In its modern history, Yemen has inflicted a humiliating defeat upon the British Empire. One part of the country even became the only Arab state to adopt Soviet style Marxist Leninism as its ideology. The song we're listening to dates back to that period of Yemeni politics. Our guest today is Helen Lackner. Helen is one of the leading experts on modern Yemen. She spent several years living in the country and has written numerous books and articles about it, including her recent work, Yemen in Crisis. For the last 30 years, Yemen has been formally united into a single state, although the conflict of the last decade has broken up that political unity in practice. But previously, Yemen had been divided into two states. What were the origins of that divide?
1: The first point to realise is that Yemen, within its current official borders, has never existed in the past. In way back, you had a number of different states that covered different parts of the country. Uh, More recently, in the 19th century, you had what was largely in the late borders of the Yemen Arab Republic, Ottoman rule and in what was then and after the Brits arrived in 1839 they gradually took control to a large extent and not necessarily particularly closely of what later became the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. So Yemen in its current borders has never actually existed previously. And I think that's possibly worth remembering when trying to analyze the current situation. I mean, the Ottoman period in what later became the Yemen Arab Republic was ruled primarily by a Zaidi Imam. And that person was a Sayyid, which is a member of a social group that considers itself descendants from the Prophet. And in Yemen, they are called Sayyid or Sada in the plural. In other countries, they're called Hashemites or Ashraf. This is particularly relevant if one looks now at the situation with the Houthis, which we'll come back to later, I expect. So we had, you know, two states in the 19th century and basically until the middle of the 20th century, one ruled by an imam on a theocratic basis and further south after the British arrived. Basically, we had the Yemen, the, the British colony in Aden, and the Eastern and Western protectorates, which were largely left to their own chaotic devices or different degrees of chaos. I mean, much more chaos in the Western protectorates than in the Eastern protectorates, where you had semi states operating. That is basically the situation up to the mid 50s, early 60s.
0: What factors lay behind the Republican military coup in 1962 and why was it followed by civil war and by the intervention of foreign powers in Yemen?
1: The military coup, which is known in Yemen as the revolution, it is not known as a coup. It's Objectively, it is a coup. It was a military coup, but it was generally described by most people in the country and is perceived as the overthrow of the imamate, which it was but also as the beginning of a republic so again it's not uh, it's not commonly described as a coup it came about after decades of frustration i would say against the imamate the fact that the imam did rule very autocratically, particularly the last imam, Ahmed, and oppressively. There had been a large number of uprisings. I mean, the most famous ones were the ones of 1948 and 1955, when groups of, um, you could say, educated elites opposed the imam and tried to overthrow him Militarily, and they were very severely repressed. Basically, a lot of heads were cut and put to view to the public in various locations. You had a regime which you know, many describe as retrograde and, and very comparable to the one that existed in Oman prior to 1970. And that particular regime included heavy taxation throughout the country, which made life difficult for people, and very limited investment in any of the modern aspects that people were interested in, or certainly are now, things like health and education. You also had the fact that a number of officers that the imam had sent out for training to Iraq, and I think to other maybe elsewhere, came back with an element of Arab nationalist ideology, and therefore came back with anti royalist sentiments, you could say, I mean, our anti-monarchical sentiments, and therefore were ready for, you know, wanting to get rid of the imam. The actual imam Ahmed died in his bed, um, but it was his successor, his son Badr, who actually had made, had been quite progressive in certain senses and had, was expected to be operating much more within the you could say, the Arab nationalist uh, framework, but he was in power for 10 days before he got overthrown. And the reason it became a civil war is because the revolutionaries failed to kill him. And he escaped and went north and rallied both tribespeople and, of course, support from the Saudi regime, as well as others, to fight back.
0: The following clip comes from a British news report shortly after the overthrow of the Imam. It contains more than a dash of the attitudes that Edward Said would later write about in his book Orientalism.
2: Sana looks today much as it must have done in biblical times. Since I was in Sana, the deposed Imam Bada, whom the rebels hoped was dead, has reappeared over a hundred miles from here at the head of an army of loyal tribesmen in the north of the Yemen and he's promised to win back his feudal kingdom from the leader of the revolution, Brigadier Salal. Every man who can afford a rifle carries it as a prized possession, and it's the support of these men that Salal needs for his new regime. The old imam kept the tribes subdued by the classical method of taking hostages against their good behaviour. Yemen is incredibly poor and its economy is based entirely on agriculture. Everything is done by the most primitive methods Donkeys, for instance, are still used for threshing. It would be a problem for any government to bring the Yemen into the 18th century, let alone the 20th. The revolution began at midnight on September the 26th. During the eight days of his reign, the new Imam Bada had released the tribal hostages, freed political prisoners, and appointed Salal his commander-in-chief. This policy of appeasement proved fatally misguided. Walking through the ruins of his damaged palace, I heard the story of the revolution from the new government's spokesman. In the centre of Sanaa, there's a square which dominates much of the city, and at midnight, six Russian-built tanks of the Yemeni army moved in from their barracks outside the city wall. Three stayed in the square and three surrounded the palace. The Imam was telephoned and asked to surrender. He refused, and the tanks began shelling the palace. The Imam fought back until dawn when he left through a small side door, normally used by the women. The revolutionaries pursued the imam for 22 days until they lost track of him in the north. When he'd gone, the public were allowed into the palace to loot.
1: So you had the revolutionaries who were immediately supported by NASA and who, sat and who sent significant pro- numbers of troops to Yemen. There were times when there were up to 70,000 Egyptians in Yemen in troops, as well as sending a lot of administrators and political advisors who were actually more than advisors. So you really had... a. a a civil war, but it also had, uh, again, significant international involvement, just as the civil war does today, where you had the Egyptians supporting the Republican side, and you had the Saudis and the Brits supporting the Imamate side. Um, The Brits were a bit less open about it, but it was, I suppose you could call it a an open secret or there's some terminology for this kind of um, situation they sent a few SAS and there was even some israeli support if you look at the books that were written on the period you know there's very clear involvement of different um, countries in that civil war which basically was indecisive in late 67 early 68 there were after the nasser, nasser withdrew his troops there was an attempt by the royalists to actually take over and win uh, Sana'a City, and there was the 70-day siege of Sana'a, which became remained very famous in Yemeni memories. And that uh, siege that failed. It, they failed to oust the Republicans. But what did happen in 67, 68, 69 was a process by which the most extreme royalists or the extreme imamists were defeated or basically marginalized, while on the other hand, the left-wing part of the Republican movement was also marginalized and in some cases people were killed, resulting in the possibility of the deal that actually took place in 1970, which agreed to retaining the republic, but it was a republic of basically right-wing republicans and um, less imamate imam supporters. So none of the imam's family were allowed to come back. But at the same time, the left of the movement was also eliminated.
0: How did Ali Abdullah Saleh come to be the leader of North Yemen by the end of the 1970s?
1: Yeah, Ali Abdullah Saleh was a, an officer, from a small tribe called the Sanhan, which is a branch or a minor branch of the largest and most important tribal confederation in Yemen called the Hashid. He was an officer sitting in Taiz. but what happened between 77 and 78 is that three Yemeni presidents were assassinated, two in the north, Ibrahim al-Hamdi, who is still remembered as you know, the great hope of Yemenis, and very, very revered all over the country. And his who, who was assassinated in October 1977, just as he was about to go to Aden to sign a unity agreement with then President of the South, Salmin, and they were basically in agreement. We're now going to hear some
0: clips from an interview with Edward Gonheim, a US diplomat who was based in Yemen in the 1970s. They come from an Al Jazeera documentary about the life and death of Yemen's lost leader, Ibrahim al-Hamdi. Gonheim explains who he believes was responsible for the death of al-Hamdi.
3: The Saudi role in Yemen has always been complex, has always been complicating. The Saudis did not like Hamdi in the end, toward the end. They saw him as independent of them, of course. They saw him as perhaps threatening because he was able to consolidate the country behind him, a very difficult thing to do in Yemen. And he also had particular international efforts to try and, well, the relationship with the South Yemen. And the Saudis would be very uh, anxious if there were any moves to unify the country. Well, I think that the Saudis decided to get rid of Hamdi simply because they saw him as getting too strong and um, undercutting their influence in Yemen, able to counter their traditional way of dealing with tribes. The widespread view, what I heard from Yemeni uh, contacts, friends, in private, of course, was that these assassinate, the assassination of Hamdi was, um, was a Saudi-run operation using Yemenis who were in their pay, or um, people they thought would do their beckoning. Among those was Kashmi and certainly Ali Abdullah Saleh.
1: So... After his assassination, another officer, an officer, became president in Sanaa, called Al Rashmi, and he was assassinated in June 1978, supposedly by an envoy from Salmin. Uh, I think there's some debate about whether that is really who assassinated him. I mean, who assassinated him is clear, because they died together. But whether it was on the orders of Salmin is another question. And as a result, the Southerners used that as an opportunity to kill Salmin. So that's how you lost three presidents by end of June 1978. At which point, numbers of maneuvers took place in Samra, and I suspect that... um, Saleh was appointed president in the assumption that he would basically take orders from different features. I mean, at the time, when I first went to, to Sama in 1980, and um, throughout that period, for many, many years. All of us expected a coup tomorrow morning, and expected to wake up in the morning and find that Saleh had been assassinated. And you know, no, as the saying was, that nobody would sell him a life insurance policy for a million dollars because we thought it would have to be paid up really fast. Clearly, as history has shown, this was a mistaken assumption, and Ali Abdullah Saleh lasted thirty-three years as president.
0: Soon after her coronation, Britain's Queen Elizabeth II paid a visit to Aden. The report from Pathé News seemed blissfully confident that British colonial rule would last well into the future.
4: The scene at Aden is typical. Thousands of cheering, loyal subjects welcoming their own queen on their own soil. Important as a coal and oil station as well as a trade route, Aden has a mixed population of Arabs, Indians, Pakistanis and Somalis. Eagerly they gather for a glimpse of their royal visitors when, in Crescent Gardens, Her Majesty and the Duke attend a great military parade. During her two-day stay in the Protectorate, the Queen expresses her confidence in the future of Aden, which she describes as an outstanding example of colonial development.
0: We're now going to hear two clips from an interview with James Lunt. Who commanded the Federal Army in the British protectorates in the early 1960s? In the first clip, Lunt gives a sense of the political order that was being propped up by British rule.
5: I was coming down from up country and I stopped in a village. I heard a clanking noise at my feet. And I looked around and I saw a kind of grill in the ground below. And I could hear somebody moving about and clanking. And I asked who it was, and they were all very evasive, the sheck in particular. So I said, get this chap out. And they brought him out, and he had a beard down to his waist, and he's dressed in rags and emaciated to a degree. And I asked why, how long he'd been there, and nobody could remember. And apparently he'd been locked away years before, and there he'd been left. So I told and he was shackled, hands and foot. And I told them to knock the shackles off and let the fellow go free. I thought he'd thank me for the good deed, but far from it, he complained that from now on nobody would give him any food.
0: In the second clip, James Lunt speaks about the methods that were used to keep this part of Yemen under British control.
5: What happened was that if you had a tribe that was causing trouble, you got hold of its shecks and you said, well, you either do as you're told and... Hand in hostages to answer for your good behaviour, or we're going to come and bomb you. And you gave them time to clear out of their villages or houses and get their flocks and herds out of the way, and then you went off and dropped bombs, small bombs on the whole. And it was a remarkably efficacious and cheap way of maintaining law and order in otherwise ungettable areas.
0: What was the nature of the struggle against British colonial rule in Aden in the 1960s? And what was the outcome of that
3: struggle?
1: Yeah, Aden was a different situation. I mean, after the revolution in Sana'a in 1962, that was an incentive for the southern nationalists in various forms to seriously challenge British colonial rule. There had been challenges to British colonial rule throughout the period of greater or lesser extent and very, very localized in the sense that southern Yemeni society was very fragmented already at that time. After sixty-two, and with the influence of Nasserism on the one hand, as well as the rise of the trade union movement in Aden, which had been a very important element of left-wing politics in that region, which had also been emerging since the early to mid 50s. I mean, if you look at the, at the, since basically the presence of the refinery in 1954, if I remember rightly, maybe I've got the date slightly wrong, and other events. So you had a strong trade union movement in Aden. You had a number of people who had been sent to study at AUB, as many other nationalists in the Arab world went to AUB. And they came back very much influenced by the movement of Arab nationalists. This movement of Arab nationalists is really the ancestor also of many, many left-wing movements in the Arab world, and primarily of the two main Palestinian left-wing movements, the People's Front for the Liberation of Palestine and the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, as well as the movements in Oman, the PFLO, or PFLO AG, as it was from nine at the from sixty eight for a few years. You had a combination of two sets of movements: one a primarily rural movement, which was basically the one connected with the MAN, and you had a, an urban movement which had emerged from the from the trade union movement, which is why you ended up in Aden with a struggle as much between two rival liberation movements, the FLOSI, Front for the Liberation of Occupied South Yemen, which was aligned with the trade unions and much very nasserists, and the National Liberation Front, which was much more diverse initially and included MAN people as well as people who had an even clearer left-wing ideology, as well as others who were more had a more tribal approach. So it was a much more diverse movement than Flosi, But actually, before Britain left, and in the summer of 1967, you had more fighting going on in Aden between these two groups than between either of them against the British. And effectively, the NLF defeated Flosi in August, which is the reason why, or at least one of the reasons why, Britain negotiated uh, independence with the NLF rather than with FLOSI. Another reason, of course, is that FLOSI was, in British eyes and in reality, closely associated with Nasserism. And as we mostly remember, the British uh, in that period considered Nasser barely an improvement on the devil incarnate. So that was a, a reason for a hostility. Uh, very, very clearly, so that also influenced them. then a third factor is that they actually knew extremely little about the NLF. and um, so when you read you know documents or memoirs that Brits have written on the period, they often recognize that basically they had no idea who the NLF was.
0: The following clip comes from a British television series on the end of Empire. A British diplomat, Samuel Fall, talks about his first meeting with the NLF.
6: Naturally, the colonial office didn't like us coming because we were turning everything on its head. And uh, one remembers the remark, classical, I think, of many ex-colonial situations, I will not negotiate with these murderers. But the history of the end of empire is negotiating with whatever you like to call them.
4: Lord Shackleton's was the first British attempt to contact the NLF after three years of fighting. Sir Sam Fall was taken by a go-between to meet NLF representatives in a back street in Crater. I explained
6: that Lord Shackleton had come to Aden in order to negotiate independence and to involve all parties concerned. The NLF were a very important party to this and we would be interested in talking with them And we would of course consider uh, releasing their detainees and uh, taking the ban off their party so that we could discuss things in a reasonable and relaxed atmosphere. But there was just one minor condition that we'd like to make. If it were possible, we would be very grateful if they would stop killing us. And the two representatives roared with laughter. And one of them, he did like this. He said, Abu Sami, mushmonke. Very sorry, Abu Sami, this is quite impossible. But being young, naive, and foolish, I said, but, but why? We come with peace, and we want to talk to you. It will be rational if you'd stop killing us. He said, no, you must understand. But uh, Flossie constantly accuse us of being the running dogs of the imperialists. And if we, at this moment, were seen to be talking to you, this would simply give credence to their story. That they are the sole representatives of the people of South Arabia and we are imperialist lackeys. And so, Abu Sami, we're very sorry, but we have got to drive you out of Aden. And we have to be seen to drive you out of Aden. When we have reached that stage, then we can negotiate.
0: The eventual British withdrawal from Aden proved to be every bit as ignominious as the later US withdrawal from Saigon. The End of Empire documentary from the 1980s captured that sense of humiliation very well.
4: In the last six months, 30,000 troops pulled out, leaving a rearguard around the British airbase. The High Command was worried that the victorious NLF would carry out its threat to launch a final assault. Off Aden, a task force of twenty-four ships stood ready to perform a quick rescue. For the NLF, the moment of victory was near. Their colonial enemies were leaving, and their nationalist rivals, Flossie, were defeated in Aden. NLF leader Katana Shabi summoned journalists in Jibar, a small town near Aden, to announce his conditions:
6: that they will give our people their full independence. That is the first point. Second point, that they realize that the NLF is the true representative of uh, our people. Third point is that Britain is ready to hand over full authority to NLF. And then, if I'm selected by the NLF command to meet any British uh, authority or uh, I'm ready to do that.
4: In November, in Geneva, only days before the British withdrawal, the former guerrilla leader, Ashabi, was recognised by Britain as the future head of an independent government. The High Commissioner, Sir Humphrey Trevelyan, took the final salute from the deck of HMS Intrepid. In Aden, there were no fanfares and no formal handover of power. Regimental flags were lowered. At quarter two, the helicopters lifted
5: the final 330 men from about ten positions around the perimeter of Aden.
4: Colonel Di Morgan was the last British soldier out of Aden. He left at three o'clock on the afternoon of the 29th of November, 1967.
5: As I circled the positions which my unit had been occupying for the last day to ensure that everything had been picked up safely and there was nobody left behind, I had a feeling of sadness that I was um, turning out across the Aden Bay to back to Albion, that I was the last man and we were leaving Aden after a British presence had been there for 128 years.
4: All very sad. In the streets of Aden and all over the country, there was jubilation. The 128 years of the British Raj, which started with Captain Haynes, had ended.
0: After decolonization and after the British withdrawal, why did South Yemen, under the rule of the NLF, then become the only Arab country with a formal commitment to Soviet-style Marxism? And behind the rhetoric, what did that system actually mean for the people over whom it ruled?
1: Yeah, the second part of your question is the easier one. What it meant for the people actually was a highly reasonable standard of living, indeed, a standard of living above and beyond the financial capacities of the state. The PDRY regime, one of its major assets, you know, was its ability to provide good education, to spread education all through the country and also health services and infrastructure and jobs. Another element is that most people had incomes which were not particularly fantastic, but which were sufficient to keep their families thanks to food subsidies and other basic support. So that was really the positive element of the regime and something that people even today go back to as you know, seeing this as elements of good old days. Others still look at the British nowadays as the good old days. But certainly the PDRY is positively remembered by those who remember it and their children and now grandchildren for having provided adequate living standards without corruption and without major um, difficulties. And that was true both in urban and rural areas, because you need to remember that in the majority of people were actually rural even in that period. And despite the fact that the agrarian reform and the rural systems were not entirely satisfactory by any standards. Now, the, the question about wh- why it became the only country committed to Marxism in any form or shape. They didn't call it Marxism. I mean, they call it scientific socialism. And that was partly, you have to look at the whole historic period you're dealing with. We're talking about the late 70s and the 80s. So we're talking about after the formal end of the Sino-Soviet dispute. We're also talking about the Remnants or remains of the impact of the Cultural Revolution in China. We're also looking at the fact that uh, people, you know, that there, there had been a strong influence from China early on, and in the debates within the YSP, they did reflect those problems. And I think it's largely because of the overall international situation that this was possible. So we also talk, you know, you look at 1967 and onwards you're seeing the defeat of Nasserism and of Arab nationalism as represented by Nasserism at a time when also Ba'athism in Iraq and Syria were largely discredited by those who had any familiarity with those regimes. Therefore in the the form of socialism that appeared to be a, f- a possible reasonable feature was really Eastern European or Chinese or Cuban because there were quite a few. Cub- For example there was a big Cuban medical mission in Aden. The Cubans trained and developed the medical school in Aden. So that spread into you know, that had a strong impact ideologically. So I would say those are a number of factors which contributed to the presence of this regime. And you have to remember that, of course, we were also in the Cold War context, and therefore the Soviet Union found it very convenient to have access to Aden as a naval position and to have a kind of a foothold in the region particularly given that the rest of the peninsula was then and is today run by pretty much autocratic monarchies, So although I think that's not the complete answer to it, I think those are factors that significantly contributed.
0: Why did the ruling party in South Yemen then descend into what were quite bloody power struggles between rival factions in the 1970s and 80s?
1: The short answer is I wish I knew. (laughs) Um, You know, I lived there for five years, which actually is a significant percentage of the number of years the regime existed. It's sort of more than 20% of the period the regime existed. And I did... It's one of the things that I would ask leaders when I came across them. You know, what, The main question I kept asking them, which I never got an answer to, was why they were using external models rather than developing their own Marxist analysis on the basis of the social and economic reality of the country. That was one big question. Why? I mean, the factionalism clearly had, at the early stage, a connection with what I've just talked about, And, for example, Salmin was considered a populist following the Chinese line, whereas Abdul Fattah Ismail was considered a sort of bureaucrat following a very straightforward um, Soviet bureaucratic approach. And Ali Ali Nasser Mohammed was seen as an in-between pragmatist. So that was, you could say, was one element. You know, many people turn around and say, that it was merely tribal struggle. I personally don't accept that. I mean, 1986, which was the bloodiest of all the struggles, deteriorated and became a tribal struggle in the sense that after the initial fighting on 13th of January, people were attacked and killed on the basis of their identity cards and where they came from. So it degenerated into a tribal struggle, or, or you could say a regional struggle, but that's not what it was initially. Initially, the 1986 struggle, in my view, was absolutely nothing more than a power struggle. I want to be in your seat. And a few months after it happened, I went back to Yemen. People, I just published my book on the PDRY a few months on, in October to, uh, 1985, and many people wanted me to write a, an, an analysis of the events of 1986 for an Arabic edition, which never happened, but never mind. So I actually spent a month traveling around both at the PDRY and Sama, where the, the def, those defeated had taken refuge, interviewing as many leaders as I could get hold of and taking piles and piles and piles of notes, which I still have, And basically, you know, I had a number of questions for them. I said, what are the differences in foreign policy? What are your differences with respect to social policies? What are your differences with respect to economic policies and particularly uh, rural policies? And the answers eventually made pages of nonsense. And my conclusion was that the only thing they were fighting about was getting the top seat. So that's certainly for 1986. I think the, the earlier ones in '69 was also well 69 was much more straightforward left-right, different policies. Uh, 78 was mainly perceived to be the anti-anti-populist, anti-pro-Chinese move and the success of the more directly uh, pro-Soviet move. So I'm not sure to what extent that does um, answer the question, but certainly I felt in retrospect and I I thought at the time, and I think today, that these struggles were largely counterproductive. Another element one has to remember is that the support and sponsors for opposition to the PDRY regime from the Saudis, from the Brits, from all kinds of sources you know, clearly egged them on. You know, there were, I mean, not only did they have to contend with armed incursions and fighting enemies across the board, and that was the people who had been defeated by when when British colonialism ended, and then later um, after the 69 struggle, and then after the 78 struggle, and indeed after the 86 struggle. They certainly had real enemies, and it was obvious that these enemies would use means, direct, indirect, etc., to sponsor and support division and dissent amongst them. So I think that's another factor that needs to be taken into account. But they could alternatively have responded to those um, proddings by uniting and having a more of a united front, which obviously they didn't, as we've seen.
0: How did unification come about between the two parts of Yemen in the early 1990s? And secondly, what kind of system took shape in the new states after unification?
1: Yeah, unification actually took place in 1990 itself. And it came about as a result of a number of factors. Amongst the official slogans in both parts of the country, Yemeni unity had been the most popular political slogan. And, you know, in a Yemeni school every morning, the children stand up and, you know, shout the standard national slogans. So that's something that was very ingrained. People also largely had, you know, had relatives in the other part of the country you had an enormous number of South Yemenis who went and migrated to the Gulf and Saudi Arabia via the north, because the YAR had a special agreement with the Saudis, which meant that its citizens didn't have to go into the usual sponsorship and other regulations and could come and go as they wished. So going in with a North Yemeni passport was very, very convenient for anybody. So many southerners did that. Um, So, you know, these are... A Number of factors which mean that there was, there, there is, in my view, a Yemeni nation. You know, although there are differences between a, a Hadrami or a Mahri and somebody from Saada, in the you know, the first in the far east and the other ones in the far north, there, there are certain common features that most Yemenis share. And I think when you, and I also again remember for decades. When people talked about Arab unity, I did consider it a joke. I never thought it could happen. Whereas I always felt that Yemeni unity was a real possibility because there was this um, cultural and, and historical connection within of people within the country from one end of it to the other, including a few bits that are currently not part of it. So that's one important element Of course, there were a number of political elements. On the one hand, internally, both the PDRY and the YR were going into crises, democratic crises, in fact, because Ali Abdullah Saleh by that time had been in power for almost 10 years. His regime was consolidating and it was causing considerable dissatisfaction amongst the people. And oil income had only just started in 86, 87. So there was a crisis at that level. And certainly there was a lot of demand. And there was an uprising in what's known as the Western region, you know, against his regime. So he had his problems to deal with. The PDRY regime after 86 was basically discredited for the population. The fact that, you know, the, the, Struggle the uh, thirteenth of January eighty six struggle was perceived by everybody as nothing more than a power struggle which had been very murderous. Up to fifth, at least five thousand people were killed in the process. There was a m- massive emigration of all the enemies. I mean, of the defeated groups. So that regime failed to reconstruct any credibility amongst the population, despite a number of very positive efforts, I mean, including, for example, allowing much more freedom of expression and allowing other parties to exist, etc. So those are basically the factors that brought about unity. And one of the things that kind of was a trigger was that oil was discovered at a particular location, which is really on the border between both of them and Saudi Arabia. And it was perceived, I think rightly, that if the two Yemen's started fighting each other on this one, the Saudis would just take the lot. So that, you know, forming unity was an option, uh, a better option, certainly. Ali Abdullah Sal was in favor of it, he thought, and I think his story has proved him right, that he would manipulate it and succeed and be the stronger element. I mean, remember that at the time of unification, you had about nine million Yemenis from the Yemen Arab Republic and about two million from the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen. So the the balance of population was very much in favor of the northern element. And so he took over, and uh, and. There was. There's a lot of debate still today about what the agreement was, because the the, the Yemen socialist parties uh, believed that they had agreed on a federal system, and that this was that it was the then leader Ali Salim al bid who was tricked or who agreed with Ali Abdullah Saleh in in a drive through a tunnel that to go for full unity. And that's what was announced. And that is the widespread story, and it may be true. I have no idea. So, though this is how unity came about, and it was greeted at the time by Yemenis everywhere with great enthusiasm, as it was something that people had aspired to—being able to travel around freely, to be able for the southerners to access to the, you know, material goods available in in the north. And a lot of people had two main hopes, which remain, you know, which are still worth recalling. Gat, as you may know, is a sort of mild drug that is widely consumed in Yemen. And in the PDRY, there were regulations. It could only be consumed at weekends and on holidays. It's something you have to use fresh. You don't, you know, you don't really use dried up old, old Gat. And in the YR, it was permitted all the time, and it had spread enormously and has spread even more since. And many, many people in both parts of Yemen were really hoping that the southern rules on Ghat would be imposed. And another element that certainly many women were hoping for was that the Yemen, the PDRY's women's law, family law, would prevail. And that gave women much, much better. I mean, actually, it gave them officially full rights by comparison with the situation in the YAR. And of course, what happened was the opposite. Um, The Gat laws of Samar spread to all of Yemen, and you now see people chewing morning, noon and night everywhere in the country. Well, normally not in the mornings, at least. And the family law of the North was imposed, and you find Southern women, and indeed women throughout Yemen, find that their circumstances were deteriorated considerably after that. So basically what happened is that after there was another civil war, a short one in 1994, when the Southerners tried to reassert their independence, or some Southerners tried to reassert their independence and were militarily defeated in Aden by Ali Abdullah Saleh's forces, supported not only by a number of Islamists and Afrans as they were known, people who'd come back from the jihad in Afghanistan, but also by the forces that had been defeated in 1986. That again is relevant today when you look at the situation with respect to the Southern Transitional Council and Southern separatism. So after 1994 what happened is that the regime that Saleh had been operating in the YAR basically spread throughout Yemen. And that was a regime where you had a formal democracy and the presence of other parties, but basically decisions and rule were taken by a small clique of militaries and beneficiary benefits came to another or similar and additional clique of, what one could call kleptocrats, without much doubt. And that caused a lot of dissatisfaction, of course, uh, in the South. I mean, it it wasn't particularly appreciated in the North, but they were used to it. So in the South, it caused considerable uh, frustration and anger. And it also caused frustration and anger, I'd say, in the North.
0: In 2011, after the fall of dictators in Egypt and Tunisia, protests against Saleh, brought the whole Yemeni system into contention.
4: It's standing room only in Sana'a's central square. Al Jazeera
0: reported on this sudden eruption of political turbulence.
4: And there's a touch of humour. A packet of President Saleh biscuit with an expiry date, the 3rd of June. The protesters are demanding a swift transition of power and are making plans.
0: Thank God we are now about to form
4: a transitional council to manage the country in this period. We do not care if Salah returns to the country or not. This transitional council will gain its legitimacy from the people of Yemen.
0: What would you say were the main factors behind the uprising that eventually ousted Saleh? Uh, from 2011 onwards, and how much do you think Yemen had in common with other Arab countries that ousted their own rulers at the same time, much the same time?
1: I think we've really got to to that, you know, the points that I've just made about frustration at the type of rule of Ali Abdullah Saleh was certainly a major element that led to the uprisings. And this frustration was particularly you know, was this uh, the result of increased poverty throughout the country. I mean, you saw poverty in Yemen in the early 2000s that I had seen in places like Pakistan or West Africa and never thought I would see in Yemen. And that was because there were no jobs, because, of course, also the population was rising at 3% per annum and resources were not increasing. Because the kleptocrats were grabbing everything and leaving very little to anybody else. Uh, You saw more people through in poverty begging in the streets. Every year you saw more. The increased poverty was really a stunning feature of the last decade, I'd say, before the uprisings. You had the political tensions which were rising. I mean, Saleh's divide and rule policy was one which had primarily affected everybody, but it was very much focused on the north, where from the Houthi movement emerged and where you had six wars between the Houthis and the Saleh regime between 2004 and 2010. And in the south, it emerged through the southern separatist movement, which started as a movement of the thousands of military and officers and security people who had been dismissed after 1994 and who were left without any income. But you also had increased poverty, you had the corruption, corruption irritated and made people angry everywhere. And you had more young people maybe getting educated, but not finding any outlets. So you had of of an increasing dissatisfaction about the economic situation and also the paralysis of the political situation where in 2009 and 2010 Saler tried to manipulate and yet again change the constitution so that he would be able to stand for presidency yet again and he was preparing his son to inherit. And this, in a way, brings us to, to the other half of your question, which is... Saleh was hoping to end up with a republican monarchy or whatever. And um, th- this was to follow the models that uh, Assad had successfully implemented in Syria and Mubarak uh, uh, failed to implement in Egypt, so of passing on power to their sons. But in other aspects, the frustration in Yemen was very similar to the frustration in other countries, as I think I've just described, you know economic problems, poverty, lack of democracy, lack of freedom. I mean, you had much more freedom in Yemen in terms of saying what you wanted. Saleh had realized that you could let people speak and say what they wanted as long as they didn't have any influence, you know, they couldn't stop, which was not the case in Syria, for example, and, and less so in Egypt or, or in Tunisia. But in terms of economic demands and demands and, and social and political demands, I think they were largely the same everywhere then and also not that dissimilar from the demands that have been made in Algeria or Sudan 10 years later. From that moment
0: of opening or hope, however tentative, in Yemen in 2011 and 2012, how did the country then descend into civil war and what role did outside powers have to play in what happened?
1: Yes, so in 2011, Saleh was forced out of power. The movement was very strong within Yemen, but it split and you ended up... Sorry, it's not the movement that split, the military and a number of Saleh supporters joined the movement, including a major military unit. And so you then had a series of, con- of military confrontations between the Saleh supporters and the supporters, supposedly, of the revolution. This led to clear international intervention in the sense that the supporters of Yemen, and they were at that time known as the Friends of Yemen, it had been set up in 2010 after the Underpants Bomber incident, if you happen to remember that one, and was composed of a large, of most major states, including, of course, the GCC states, so between them they supported the the what was known as the GCC initiative and later after November 2011 became the GCC agreement which included the departure of Saleh from the presidency but because Saleh remained politically strong he was not neither forced out of the country nor forced out of its politics he retained control of the General People's Congress which was his uh, creation, his political creation, and which still remains one of the major political institutions or parties in the country. So the GCC agreement created a transitional state that was supposed to be sorted to last for two years, its president was elected on an, in an unopposed, uncontested election, and that was Saleh's vice president, who is President Hadi, who was a leading member of the faction that was defeated in the southern conflict in 1986. So he is the first southern president of Yemen. And in so in 2012 to 2014, there was supposed to be a transitional state which would include a number of elements, a government of national unity, a security sector reform, and a thing called the National Dialogue Conference, which was designed to bring about a clear new constitution, if necessary, but to sort the problems, the fundamental political problems of the country. Between them, they all failed. The government of national unity was a government between had 50% of saleh supporters given what we just explained about him retaining strong power and the other 50% was supposed to be shared between the formal political opposition in parliament composed of the islah which is a combination of tribes and tribes people and sorry northern tribes people and islamists and a whole range of other parties including the the Ba'athists and the Socialists and the Nasserists, etc. Plus what were known as the new forces emerging from the uprising were described as youth, women and civil society. So you then had this government part which had you know, half of each of these and it, was, it gained the reputation of being the most corrupt government that ever happened in Yemen. It was paralyzed in terms of doing anything. The security sector reform failed for a whole host of reasons but particularly because it failed to really uh, transform the loyalty of the main security and political units from supporting Saleh or supporting other people. And the national dialogue conference failed for a whole another host of reasons it was complicated it was badly managed by the UN and it had two, it had nine working parties, include two, one of which was for the sad astro Houthi and another one for the Southern, and the third one was on the new the forms of the state should take. And basically they couldn't, they didn't agree on anything, um, on any of those major issues. So during this uh, conference, which lasted for uh, 11 months, yeah, from April 13 to January 14. And um, with this government, while all this was going on, the Houthis were merrily increasing their control in their home area and expanding their control into other surrounding areas. And, of course, beginning to build an alliance with Ali Abdullah Saleh, who had been the number one enemy previously. But both the Houthis and Saleh opposed a federalism which was one of the main proposals of the transitional regime and they opposed the existence of the transitional government. So they had a common enemy and they got together and they basically turned out the government in early 2015 and worked together in an alliance until which became increasingly tense until the Houthis killed Saleh in December 2017. So, that and that, you know, 2015 is really when the full scale war started. So, primarily, this war is an internal Yemeni war between a whole host of different factions who have different positions and different aspects and in terms of social groups and regional aspects. So all these factors are come into consideration. And the international role is really an additional worsening factor. The direct intervention of Saudi Arabia and the coalition it led of 10 states, of whom only two are really significant, themselves and the United Arab Emirates, have merely worsened the situation, I think, and worsened the level of killings and the humanitarian situation, and basically just simply made the situation very much worse. In
0: 2016, the Saudi-led coalition provoked international outrage with the bombing of a funeral hall, as ITN News reported. They'd gathered at Sanar's al-Qadra hall for a funeral, but in Yemen, even those who mourn are in the firing room. The Saudi-led coalition airstrike tore through this place. For many of those inside, there was no escape. The scale of casualties has left Yemen in shock. Wahid al-Sarari was one of the first on the scene.
2: When we came in first from the first door of the hall, we saw, I mean, uh, we were stepping in and we saw bodies, we saw bodies, we were stepping in bodies and we didn't know it because of the hit, we didn't feel that there is bodies. Nobody were thinking that somebody will
3: hit a uh, funeral home.
0: The Saudi campaign in Yemen became a matter of political controversy in Britain when the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn and his shadow Foreign Secretary Emily Thornbury challenged their government's active support for the Saudi regime. Mr.
4: Speaker, Tahir Qasim, a Yemeni man who lives in Liverpool, told me this week that Yemen is quickly becoming the forgotten crisis. If people aren't being killed by bombs, it's hunger that kills them. The UK needs to use its influence to help the people of Yemen. Bombs exported from Britain are being dropped on Yemeni children by Saudi pilots trained by Britain. If there are war crimes being committed, then, as the UN suggests, they must be investigated. Isn't it about time this government suspended its arms sales to Saudi Arabia?
1: There is one especially disturbing allegation in the Mail on Sunday's report, which was that our forces are providing support to locally recruited, Saudi-funded militia, where many of the fighters, up to 40%, it was alleged, are children as young as 13 years old. So I would ask the Minister of State if that is in any way true, because if it is, then it would confirm that our forces are not just a party to this conflict, but witnesses to war crimes.
0: Corbyn faced a revolt from right-wing Labour MPs who refused to vote for a freeze on arms sales to Saudi Arabia. But Joe Biden announced a change of policy in Washington earlier this year. This war has to end. And to underscore our commitment, we're ending all American support for offensive operations in the war in Yemen, including relevant arms sales. In the current state of play in Yemen, do you see any cause for tentative optimism about whether the conflict can be resolved and the country can move back to a more peaceful and stable situation?
1: I'd like to say yes. (laughs) But... um, What I think may happen, as listeners may know, the third UN Special Envoy, Griffiths, having made a complete, well, totally failed to achieve anything since he took the post in February 2018, has now been promoted, as these things tend to happen in the UN system. So he will now be the Undersecretary for Humanitarian Affairs. And his new his replacement has not yet been formally named. It will most likely be the current EU ambassador, who at least has two advantages for going for him. First, he's not a Brit, and second, he is Swedish, which is you know makes him popular. Or at least he's not considered as an enemy by most forces because of his nationality, and third he's the EU ambassador, and the EU is considered as quite a relatively positive ele- external element by the different uh, groups involved so I think you know the, he he does have that those assets uh, if he is appointed though it hasn't happened yet, but it seems extremely likely but the point is that reaching reaching a deal between the houthis and their opponents is possible on the provided there is a significant change to the united nations security council resolution 2216 of 15th april 2015 which is the operative un element which determines, it's a determining UN element for uh, actions, for UN activities in Yemen. And it effectively demands complete Houthi surrender. Now, meanwhile, between 2015, when it was voted and today, we have the the Houthis have been gaining ground. They control seventy percent of the population. They have a functioning government in the area that they control. It may be a horrible government. It may be highly oppressive. It may be fundamentalist, but it it's operational. And the other, there the people against them, and particularly the internationally recognised government is increasingly weak and has barely any footing in the country at all. To and does not represent everybody else. It only represents a small group of the people opposing the Houthis. So the possibility of a deal, I think, between the Houthis and the Saudis, who are the main external interventions, and the people whom the Houthis consider the main people to negotiate with, I think is a possibility largely because the Saudis have basically lost this war after five years. Uh, It's costing them a packet and it's cost them massive, not only a packet financially, it's cost them them enormous reputational damage, in addition to a few other factors like Khashoggi's assassination and a few others we could talk about if one had another hour to discuss this. Uh, But I think Mohammed bin Salman is ready for a deal. So the question is whether a deal can be achieved with the Houthis. The Houthis are kind of stuck in their current offensive on Ma'rib, but they've been making slow progress and there are certainly factions amongst them who want to pursue it, while there are the factions who might want to reach a deal. So I, I think some kind of deal of that nature is possible. Uh, I'm not saying it's likely, I'm just saying it's possible. I think the rest of the major issues within Yemen of the problems of the problems between the southern separatists amongst themselves, of the southern separatists with uh, non-separatists in the south, the conflicts within the north between and within the Houthis, between one Houthi faction and the other, the conflicts between the Houthis and the anti-Houthis in the northern, what was the YAR, all these remain. And until and unless one has a whole new approach to politics in Yemen, starting at the grassroots, which would operate and help develop a new political class that is not a bunch of self-interested thieves, the internal conflicts will continue. And we must remember, Yemen is in the Arabian Peninsula and the Saudis will continue having massive influence. The Emiratis have been building up their influence and it's by no means a positive one. The Iranian influence on the Houthis exists, but it's not determining in the sense that many people tend to say when they talk about the the conflict in general. So there are factors external involvement in one form or another will remain even if there is a formal end to the fighting. There's also the fact that the country's economy is completely collapsed so that there will be massive need for financial support for reconstruction and I think here one has to really, I certainly fear the prospect of neoliberal policies of Saudi and Emirati funds being used by Western consultancy firms to, pro- to promote their own interests and to have development programs that would turn Yemen into an imitation, low-quality version of the worst of the Emirates. I'm talking about the poor Emirates, you know, the ones that are not Dubai and Abu Dhabi. is not a prospect to be relished. So I don't see a short-term solution. I do see, as I said, the possibility of some kind of deal which will be presented as a peace deal, but will be probably little more than ending the fighting between the Houthis and the Saudis. Many
0: thanks to Helen Lachner for giving us that account of Yemen's past and present. If you'd like to know more about the country's history, Try reading her pieces for Jacobin or her book Yemen in Crisis, which is available from Verso.